Well, it is great to be with you again this morning in this particular role. I'm with you most Sunday mornings. But to be able to consider God's word with you and to lead you in that. Um, We are running through John. If this is your first time with us, we are taking it as it comes to us. And last Sunday, in the opening verses of John 10, we considered what it means for us to say as God's people that Jesus is our shepherd. Uh, What does it mean for us to say that we are known by Jesus? And so this morning, I think John wants us to consider the opposite side of that, the other side of that coin. Another very important question, perhaps a question that's at the very center of Christianity. What does it mean to say that we know Jesus? What does it mean for us to know him? How does the identity of Jesus begin to get settled for us? How does the identity of Jesus begin to get settled into us? I think we would all agree that identity is important. You know, one of our modern cultural values is that before you judge a person, you should get to know them. It's not enough to trust a stereotype, right, or a rumor or a resume. If you can, you should do the hard work of getting to know a person before you decide to accept them or reject them. The question of identity for us is deeply related to the question of trust. And so if Jesus' primary challenge for his people is for you to trust him, then it's also very important that we understand what is meant by the challenge of knowing him as well. Trusting him is deeply related to knowing him. So little Christians, big Christians, and everyone in between this morning, it's all the same. Here's your question. Who is Jesus? How do we get to know him? And what difference, in the end, does knowing him make for us? Let's read now. John chapter 10, verses 22 through 42. It's the good news of Jesus. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem... It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. And they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. And Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming? Because I said, I am the Son of God. If I am not doing the works of my Father... Then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works 
that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and that I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. Many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. This is God's word. Let's pray this morning and ask the Lord to teach us his word. Father, we thank you that in your providence you have not left us alone in our sin. You certainly had every right to. That you have come to us, both in the words that we have now from your scripture, and even more importantly in the word who has become flesh. You are among us now by your spirit, and we do pray that you would fill us with your spirit. Lord, even now we pray that you would assure us in all the places we need assurance, that you would bring conviction in all the places where our sin has deceived us. Father, we pray that this would be a means of grace for us, that you would grow us, it would be helpful, that we wouldn't just listen and perhaps know more, that we would actually be sanctified, that you would give us your holiness, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. So I think it's fair to say that you'd come across very few people who think that Jesus is not worth knowing at all, that the identity of Jesus Christ is utterly irrelevant. For example, just after he won the Super Bowl for Green Bay a couple years ago, 89% of Wisconsin voters said they had a favorable view of Aaron Rodgers. It's pretty good. But it still only made him the third most popular person in the state. He came in just behind Abraham Lincoln, and you guessed it, Jesus. It is tough going against a Super Bowl winning quarterback in Green Bay, but Jesus apparently still polls well there. People still care about him. Many of you are perhaps familiar with C.S. Lewis's work, Mere Christianity. In that particular book, Lewis presents for us a now famous argument for the identity of Jesus based on him either being the Lord, a liar, or a lunatic. Now, the merit of that argument really isn't important for us this morning, but the assumption underlying it is, you see, what Lewis thought is that you would want that question answered. (laughs) That everyone would want that question answered. We would want to know who Jesus is, that that question, the question of Jesus' identity, was still important for us. And so if that's true, how is it that we settle the question of the identity of Jesus Christ You know, we see that in our passage this morning. So the religious leaders, it just says the Jews, but you're meant to read that as the Jewish authorities. They come to Jesus and they ask him urgently, how long will you keep us in suspense? Tell us who you are and tell us plainly, who are you? And I would say we want to know the answer to that question today, Christians and non-Christians alike. In fact, I would say we probably, as a culture, at least over the last hundred years, have tried to answer that question in at least two main ways. The first is through historical detective work. So we have all these people that are journeying back through the remnants of the past, and they are deconstructing, and they are reconstructing, and they are breaking codes, and they are pointing out for us the differences between myth and propaganda and the real story. And so in academic circles, we've been given the Jesus Seminars. In popular circles, maybe you've read the Da Vinci Code. 
And you have all those PBS Easter specials that no one would know about if it wasn't for Downton Abbey. Underneath it all is this mass paranoia that you have been duped for over 2,000 years. But good historical detective work will finally settle the identity of Jesus for you. Hooray. And there's the opposite response. The Jesus not of history, but the Jesus of individual faith. There was this German scholar, and I know I lost about half of you when I said German scholar. It makes me want to fall asleep too. Who became popular in the early half of the 20th century. His name was Rudolf Boltmann. That's my best redneck pronunciation of a German name. And Boltmann wanted to make a sharp distinction for us between the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith. He said this, Christians shouldn't be concerned with the historicity of Jesus' identity. Most of it's myth. It's really irrelevant for the church. Instead, you should struggle in your own individual heart to make Jesus meaningful for you personally. In other words, Jesus can be for you this morning whoever You need him to be, whoever you want him to be. And so we see that played out in a lot of different ways. For Ricky, Bobby, and Talladega Knights, remember this, that Jesus is the eight-pound, six-ounce newborn baby in his golden fleece diapers. For some of my students on Valentine's Day, Jesus was their true boyfriend. For others, he's a personal life coach, perhaps a financial broker. Maybe he's the cheapest therapist that money can buy. Jesus is whoever you need him to be within yourself. Probably won't surprise you this morning that neither historical detective work nor individual affection in the gospel is meant to settle the question for us regarding the identity of Jesus. The gospels present us with a Jesus who is not a puzzle to be solved, nor a legend to be rearranged and reformatted. He is the Savior who is meant to be worshipped. And John gives us two questions, I think, at least two questions to consider this morning as we walk through this particular narrative. Here's what I want us to think about. How is it that we settle the question of Jesus' identity? How do we come to know Jesus for who he really is? And then what difference in the end does that make for us? How do we know Jesus and what difference does it make? Well, first, how do we know Jesus? Well, Jesus answers the question himself pretty plainly in verse 25. If you have your Bibles open, you can look there with me. He says this, I told you, and you didn't believe. And so in one sense, the answer is pretty simple. We know Jesus because he tells us about himself. We know Jesus through his own testimony, through his own witness, through his own self-attestation. Jesus comes to us personally in order to make himself known. But the problem goes deeper. If you just take it a step further, how is it that we come to believe that? How do we come to believe the testimony? How does the attestation of Jesus' own witness to himself begin to sink into us? Look at verse 26. You don't believe because you are not a part of my flock. It's an incredible statement. I'm going to read it to you again. You do not believe... Because you are not a part of my flock. Do you see what Jesus is saying here? You can only know me through being a part of my flock. In other words, you can only know me in any sort of authoritative way 
by joining yourself with my people. By sharing in the life of my church. You will never know me. You will never get me. You'll never understand me. By standing outside and trying to decide on my character and my identity for yourself. You'll never know me. By historical reconstruction, you have to come inside my people. You have to learn what it means to worship. You have to belong to them and to me. Jesus is saying this. The church is the place where his identity gets settled. What does that mean for you this morning? What does it mean for me this morning? What does it mean for us who call ourselves a church? Well, two important things, at least these two things, I think. Number one, it means that worship is essential for our discipleship. I'm going to say it again. It's simple. Many of you probably know it and think it and believe it. Worship is essential for our own discipleship. Here's what that means. Preaching. What's taking place right now. (laughs) The sacraments. Oversight, prayer, confession, singing, shaking hands with strangers for four or five minutes in the middle of the service. What you are a part of right now is not a frivolous one and a half hour part of your week. It is the place ordained by God where your skepticism, where my skepticism, where your ignorance, where my ignorance, where your unbelief, where my unbelief begins to actually melt away. It is the place ordained by God where sinners go from being brokenhearted, excuse me, cold-hearted, to actually being brokenhearted. And here's the thing I want you to see. We often assume that discipleship only works in the other direction. Here's what we assume. We have to know something in order to believe it. And then we have to believe something in order to belong. Jesus is saying here that discipleship actually moves the other way as well. Get that. You have to belong in order to believe. And you have to believe in order to know. And can I tell you something? If you despise mystery and circular logic, then Jesus will frustrate you to no end. I hope that there is room for mystery in your discipleship. That there is room for a God who is not always as linear as you would like him to be. The clarifying challenge for us this morning is fairly simple. If you want to know Jesus, if you want to believe in Jesus, if you want to trust in Jesus, then be a part of his flock. If you want to know more of Jesus, if you want to trust in Jesus, if you want to belong to Jesus and believe in Jesus, then lean into the church, not away from it. Belong to his people. It is inside the people of Jesus that you will most clearly hear the voice of Jesus. The church is essential for your discipleship. It's non-negotiable. The second thing I think that we learn about that particular reality is this. Not only is the church essential for our discipleship, but our discipleship, our shared life together, is essential for evangelism. If people need to come into the flock in order to know Jesus... (laughs) then our shared life, the way that we describe it in our church here is that we hear the gospel, 
We love the gospel and we proclaim the gospel. And our hearing and loving and proclaiming, this is the way that Jesus makes himself known, not only to us, but to those outside of the church as well. John, um, John records Jesus saying this often. In fact, in three chapters later, Jesus says this. It's much more explicit here. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, so you also are to love one another. Listen. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. In other words, that you belong to me and I to you, if you have love for one another. And here's what Jesus is saying. Our love for one another doesn't just belong to us. Our love for one another, the way that we share life together, the way that we speak to each other and submit to each other and serve one another, that is for the world. It is for your neighbors. It is for your neighborhoods. What they need most is not better arguments. What they need most is not a better building, perhaps a building at all. What they need most is not a new strategy. What the world needs is for the church to be the church. Our togetherness and submission to Jesus' word is the greatest apologetic for the identity of Jesus. That's how the early church grew. I want you to listen fairly quickly to what one church history professor has written about the growth of the early church. Here's how he described it. The early Christians did not engage in public preaching. It was too dangerous. There are practically no evangelists or missionaries whose names we know. The early Christians had no uh, mission boards. They did not write treatises about evangelism. After Nero's persecution, he was a pretty bad guy. In the mid-first century, the churches in the Roman Empire closed their worship to visitors. Listen to this. Deacons stood at the church's door serving as bouncers. What a church growth strategy, huh? We're considering deacons coming up. Maybe you ought to think about that. Something to consider. They served as bouncers checking to see that no unbaptized person, no lying informer could get in. And yet the church was growing. Officially, Christianity was a superstition. Prominent people scorned it. Neighbors discriminated against the Christians in countless petty ways. Periodically, the church was subjected to pogrom. These are violent mob attacks. It was hard to be a Christian. And the church grew. How? Here's his conclusion. It grew because people were fascinated by it. They were drawn to it as a magnet because of the lives of Christians. Their concern for the weak and the poor. Their integrity in the face of persecution. Their economic sharing. Their sacrificial love. The high quality of their common life together. Once non-believers were attracted to this kind of community, they began open to talking about the person, Jesus, who was at the source of it all. How did the early church grow? The sheep of Jesus heard the voice of Jesus. And they followed. That was their strategy. Corporate worship and discipleship is at the center of how any of us ever come to know Jesus. 
how our children ever come to know Jesus, um, how we as adults know him more and more, how outsiders come to know Jesus. Our corporate worship and our life together is what communicates to us and to the world that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, that he is the hero whom the Father has sent to rescue his creation. But there's more to our passage this morning. It's not just how we know Jesus, but I want you to see what knowing Jesus begins to do to us. What difference does it begin to make in our lives? And this is sort of subtle in the passage, but I think it's important that we see this. Notice the difference between the way the flock is described in verse 29 and then 10 verses later, the way the Jewish leaders are described. So of Jesus' flock, he says this, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. Now get the image here. And no one will snatch them or grab them out of my hand. In other words, my people have been caught up by me. And try as anyone can, no one will ever take them by force. I am holding on to them. They belong to me. But of the Jewish leaders, John tells us this. Again, they sought to arrest him, but Jesus escaped from their hands. Do you see that? The Jewish leaders try to take Jesus by force. They try to catch him. They try to hold on to him, but they can't do it. There's an important contrast here. In our story, those who know Jesus are said to be caught up by him. They are caught up by his works. Their life together is held by his grip, his agenda, his priorities. They belong to him. He is their only hope in life and in death. On the other hand, those who don't really know Jesus are trying to take him by force. And he's always, this happens over and over in the Gospels, he is always slipping through their fingers. They want him. They want Jesus to belong to him, but only to incorporate him into their own itineraries and agendas and power plays. They intend, this is the point, they intend to grab Jesus, but to never be grabbed by him. And in the gospel, that makes all the difference. In the gospel, you know that you are coming to know Jesus if Jesus himself is changing your agenda. If grace is beginning to catch you up in his work and you have stopped trying to recruit him for your agenda and your work, listen to me. If Jesus hates all the people that you hate and yet he happens to love all the people that you love, if Jesus shares all of your political preferences and all of your political disdain, if Jesus happens to treat your sin casually, but to condemn others' sin pretty critically, if Jesus is always patting you on the back and thanking you for living so clean and so respectable the way he himself would have lived if he were in your shoes, then it is possible this morning that you have tried to catch Jesus for yourself. And the Savior has slipped through your fingers. However, if you were looking at the works of Jesus, and I just want you to know in the second paragraph, this is, the, this is where Jesus presses the point with his works. This morning, if you were looking at the works of Jesus, and you were finding, for example, that the incarnation is changing the way that you understand God's own love for you, and what it costs to relate to others around you who are broken, 
to enter into their life of pain and suffering at great cost to yourself, if you are looking at the works of Jesus and you are finding that the cross is deepening your own understanding of God's grace and what it costs to forgive others, to pursue hospitality and sacrifice for the sake of reconciliation and union, to love relentlessly, when you feel like you have nothing left to give, when you feel as if your very life is draining away from you, if you're looking at the works of Jesus this morning and you're finding that the resurrection is bearing God's hope in you, the resurrection is allowing you to trust in his providence, his justice, his vindication, so that your own defensiveness and your own anxiety and your own fear and anger are vigorously under attack by new patience and new joy and courage in the face of suffering. If you are looking at the works of Jesus and you are finding that they make more sense of your life than your own works ever have. If you are looking at the works of Jesus... And you have a sense that finally, 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 you can unclench your jaw and release your fingers, let your knuckles relax. And you can breathe a sigh of relief. You can exhale. Because in him you have found a place to rest. If you are looking at the works of Jesus and you see in him the Father's love for you, then knowing Jesus is beginning to do its work in you. And knowing Jesus is beginning to do its work through you. And can I say this to you this morning, if none of these apply to you, if you're looking at Jesus and he still seems enigmatic and distant and far-fetched, then the only answer is to just keep looking. Lean into the church. Come inside. Take your time. And keep looking there at the works of Jesus given to you to hold you firmly in the grip of his love. Some of you probably heard of Satchel Paige before, old baseball player. Paige was born in Mobile, Alabama in 1906. He was an extremely gifted baseball pitcher, but because he was black, he wasn't allowed to play in the major leagues himself until 1948. The Yankee great Joe DiMaggio said he was the best and fastest pitcher that he had ever himself faced. In 1935, Page's professional career began to sort of take off. He played for the Kansas City Monarchs, and he was special. People came from uh, far away to come and see just him pitch. Just come, come to the day he was pitching to watch him play. And one day, Page was on the mound, and He had a bad inning, and so he came to the mound again the next inning, and people started booing him, and it made him angry. He was very competitive, and so Paige faced the next batter, and he struck him out on three straight pitches. Pretty awesome. But then he motioned for his outfielders to come in and to take a seat on the bench, and he faced the next batter, and he struck him out as well. Then he looked at all of his infielders and he motioned for them to go in and take a seat on the bench as well. And so on the field at this point, it's just Paige and his catcher facing the batter and he strikes the next batter out again on three straight pitches. It's legendary. It is a great story. But it's perhaps an even better illustration of the gospel for us this morning. You see, when those players went to take their seats in the dugout, 
Do you notice their personal agendas didn't matter anymore? You know, one of them could have been the best center fielder the world had ever known. Very, very useful. Another could have been blind with his hands sewn to his knees. Not very useful as a baseball player. But that didn't matter anymore. Their works, their usefulness didn't matter. All that mattered in that moment was how good the guy on the mound was. Their performance was utterly held by him. His destiny, their destiny, belonged to him. The essence of the gospel is that the works of Jesus determined the destiny of the flock of Jesus. I don't think you could put it more simply than that. The essence of the gospel is that Jesus is able to hold on to you. He can hold on to his people. And so this morning, would you look again at his works? Would you consider them? Would you stare at them? Would you lean into the church and not away from it? Would you fix your eyes upon his life, his death, his resurrection? Would you rest in his ability to hold you firmly in the grip of his own grace? Who is Jesus? He is the Son of God. He is the Savior who is able to hold on to his people. And that's the good news. Let's pray together. Jesus, we are thankful that you have come to us and made promises to us. That when we gather this morning, it's, it's not periphery to you. We gather this morning as your people in need of you, and you come to us personally in the work of your Spirit to feed us on yourself, on your own grace. We pray once again, Lord, that you would help us to see you. Uh, We pray more than anything else this morning that you would make us to be caught up in you. Lord, forgive us for trying to recruit you to our agendas. Might Might we be caught up in yours Lord, might you rearrange our lives as hard as that is to pray. Lord, we want your work produced in us and in our church. And we pray that you would do that, not because we came this morning, not because we have something incredible to offer you, but just because you are gracious to your people. And we pray in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.